tell you that sign that they put up, the City Life sign over there in Newport News, it's surreal every time I, I see it. It's like, wow, this is happening. What's also surreal is it's almost September. Like, <laughs> that date is almost here. You're talking about it, and you're like, oh, yeah, that's so far away. September 14th is right around the corner. So as we talk about it, just remember, we're not going to be here. September 14th, we will all be at the Newport News campus celebrating that, celebrating together. And uh, here, again, it's almost the end of the summer. So we've been in this series, High Definition, all summer. But it's kind of coming to a close. There's only but, but so many left. And what this series is about is, is that tagline, how the definition of our words can make a world of a difference. And through various surveys that we looked at in week one and then throughout this series, we've seen how our religious vocabulary, whether it's in print or online, it's been cut in half over the last century. We just don't use religious vocabulary, words like grace and love and salvation and gospel as much as we used to. And we've seen how that has coincided with other surveys showing that over the last hundred years, there's just this decay in belief. Whether you're measuring that by church attendance, reading your word, prayer, it, it seems like the two are coinciding. So we've reflected on this question by the poet Christian Wyman who asks, does the decay of belief among educated people in the West precede the decay of language used to define and explore belief? Or do we sense the fire of belief fading in us only because the words are sodden with overuse and imprecision and will not burn? It's a powerful quote that reads like it was written by a poet. But uh, there's another quote by a, a writer, David Brooks, who puts it more simply. Many adults hunger for meaning and goodness, but lack a spiritual vocabulary to think things through. So we're asking the question, how much do our words... How much does our vocabulary with its definitions and the way we consider these topics, how does it affect our faith? So we've looked at, at our vocabulary, both at the words that we use again and again and again and again in our church culture, right? In our uh, sometimes insular church culture, sometimes in echo chamber, these words we use again and again and again like gospel, grace, love. How do we define those? And we've also looked at words that, that we just kind of have discarded. We don't really use anymore. We've kind of retired them. For instance, in this series, we looked at how we've stopped referencing lament and how that's changed the way we pray. We've looked at how we've all but retired the word liturgy in our circles, and that's affected the way that we see worship, right? How many of you guys familiar with Princess Bride? I'm in adult ministry now. Like, you know, when I was in youth ministry, kids like, what is that movie? You're terrible. And Nigo Montoya in that movie, right? He had his partner in crime, always used his word inconceivable. He looks at him finally, he's like, you keep using that word. I do not think that means what you think it means, right? How many times in the church do we use words and, and it doesn't mean it the way we're using it, right? And tonight I want to look at the word sin, right? All of a sudden you're like, oh man, I'm here this week, right? I want to look at the word sin. In Scripture, no matter what translation you have, no matter what translation of Bible you're holding, no matter what version you have up in you version, there are at least 400 mentions of sin in Scripture. Because sin is, is, is central to the Bible. Because sin is central to the good news. Sin is central to the gospel and everything that's going on and why Jesus came and why we were saved. Sin is essential. And it's spoken of again and again and again in the Bible, but so often in church, from pulpits, in conversation, it's rarely spoken as much. Because for many, it can sometimes seem almost harmful or like triggering to talk about. Because in some circles, sin has been used like a weapon to, to berate or, or beat on people spiritually, to, to sow seeds of condemnation. 
But as we've seen again and again in this series, your definition of a word determines your application and how you use it. And as we saw with so many words in this series, the word sin is no different. But what I find interesting is as you begin to look at the definition of sin biblically, sin as its definition through metaphors has changed over time. Maybe you're thinking, what are you talking about? Definitions can change. We kind of talked about this in the first week of this series. Like for us, if you want a definition for a word, you go to a dictionary. Right? You either pull that big old fat book off the shelf or you, you, you take your phone and you Google it. But when you Google define a word, it takes you to a dictionary, right, where you've got a locked and loaded definition that we take as absolute truth. Like this is gospel. This is what Webster says it is. So this is what this definition is. But I think we forget that before the late 1500s, dictionaries didn't exist. Right? There was no dictionaries in print. So most of human history went without dictionaries full of definitions. And for this reason and others, Jews didn't treat words in the Hebrew language as dialed in and defined. For them, it, words were kind of pliable, right? They approached them with imagination and words and meanings were multifaceted, right? Their definitions and meanings were pretty complex. And we see this with the history of the word sin. So to give the history of the word sin a quick rundown, in the earliest Jewish portrayals of sin, it spoke of it as a stain. This is why in Isaiah 118 it says, you are stained red with sin, but I will wash you as clean as snow. Although your stains are deep red, you will be white as wool. You know, this metaphor carries through to the end of the Bible, all the way to the last pages where it says in Revelation 7:14, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And this metaphor still lives in our worship as we sing songs like, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And then later on, we see another metaphor take root in the Hebrew language, and that is sin as a weight. Right? Sin as a weight. And we see this in the Old Testament. If you read through Exodus and Leviticus, there was this practice where they would sacrifice a goat, and then another goat, they would uh, symbolically place the weight of the sins of Israel on that goat and send it out into the wilderness representing the weight of sin. And this, too, is carried through in our worship. If you think about the song, Oh, Come to the Altar, that we sing, we've sung hundreds of times, right? Are you overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Sin has a weight to it. But then, you know, as time passed, the Hebrew culture, like much of the world, right, became influenced by commerce and trade, and their language was influenced by it, too. So by the time Jesus was walking earth and teaching, sin with, as a debt, as a, a debt that needed payment had replaced and run laps around any other metaphors for sin. You know, the Our Father, right, forgive us our sins is more directly translated, forgive us our debts. And Jesus and all these parables where he's talking about our sin, but symbolically through parables, he talks about debtors. He talks about debts being forgiven and debtors not and those people that were forgiven, not forgiving other debtors, like sin as a debt. And then Paul carries this through, right, in his epistles where he talks about the wages of sin is death. So it became the norm. But eventually it got a little weird. Right? Because if, if you have debts, there's different ranges of debts. Like I might owe Greg $5. That's a pretty small debt. But I might owe like 30 grand on my college loan. Right? That's a significantly different debt. So when you start to talk about sin in this way, you saw the, the, the development of like mortal and venial sins, right? There's the minor sins and there's the big nasties. And then there were indulgences that you could be, purchase as a way to like balance your sin account. And I'm not here to drag those practices through the mud, but the 
effect of considering sin in this way where we try to make so much else. It just becomes about transaction instead of relationship. And it's not rooted anymore in God's abundant grace. I think so often, you know, because Scripture also talks about sin as debt because that's, again, the metaphor of the time. So often I think we think of sin like it's a parking violation or or a speeding ticket. I don't know if you can remember the first time you got a speeding ticket. The first time I got a speeding ticket, I was still 16. I didn't even have my license for a year. And I, I thought I was in a world of trouble, right? I was devastated. My parents had to talk me off of a ledge emotionally. They're like, no, nah, it's, not, it's not that big of a deal, Justin. Like, like it's your first speeding ticket. It's probably not going to be your last. They're not going to do anything crazy to you. You're not going to lose your license. And I'm like, I'm not, right? And no, they, 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 they calmed me down. But I think uh, so often... Right, these days, I get a speeding ticket. I'm like, yeah, whatever, right? <laughs> there are people that are doing worse things out there in the world. Right, I, I'll pay it off. Nobody got hurt. And I think sometimes that's the way we see sin, right? It's just an infraction to get paid off that doesn't ultimately bother us much. Right? But sin goes so much deeper. It's a breaking of relationship with God. And this isn't like some lover's quarrel or a tiff with a good friend We're talking about a relationship with the creator, king of the universe, right? The almighty God that holds your next breath in his hand. That's the kind of uh, relationship breaking that we're looking at. And so we see with all these different metaphors for sin, all these different ways that the, the scripture would define it, eventually to lean into one too much, it can become problematic. And in the same way, like to use the word to just berate and sow seeds of condemnation is equally problematic. So Some would say, why even talk about it, right? We're saved. We're under the blood of Christ. We're sons and daughters of God. Why would we identify with that any longer? But then you read scripture, right? There are some sobering passages of scripture. One of them that comes to mind is 1 John 1, verses 8 through 10, where John says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. But if we claim to have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. You know, the truth is not in them. The truth is not in you. That sounds like some abstract poetic statement. But this is the same John who wrote in in his gospel that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth numerous times. Jesus says in John's gospel that he is truth. I believe it's in John 14. So this is not some abstract uh, idea. It's, it's speaking to God. That's why the next pronoun isn't an it, it's a he. Truth is personal. And to claim to walk with God but deny the presence of sin is problematic. And the way we see sin matters. But I don't want to harp on sin throughout the night. I want to look at two words that, one, we don't really use anymore, and one we probably use a little weird, <laughs> that affect the way we consider sin and affect the way that we approach the gospel in light of that. And the first is one that we probably don't use very much anymore, especially in our circles, and that is saint. Right? When I use the word saint, what do you think of? Come on, man. It's almost football season. Nobody thinks about, like, the New Orleans Saints. That's where I go immediately. The Catholic Church, Right? Anybody remember Val Kilmer's gem from like the 90s called The Saint? That was a good one. No? (laughs) Oh, but you remember it. Maybe you took a vacation in St. Martin, right? But Saint. 
Mother Teresa, right? If you think about it in terms of like Mother Teresa, that direction, the Catholic Church, you're probably thinking about a lot of dead people, right? <laughs> Pedestaling dead people. And, and some might tell you, oh, that, that's idol worship, right? This whole idea of saints, but I'm not going there. But the whole idea that our circle, our, the Protestant church has distanced itself from the word saint. For most intents and purposes, it's, it's been retired. Like 95% of the time I use the word saint, it's probably talking about a football team, right? Not talking about scripture. <laughs> but you look at our Bibles, it's throughout scripture. David uses the word saint again and again in the Psalms. John, again, who wrote 1 John, in Revelation, he uses the word saint again and again. And the New Testament uses the word saint some 59 times. And its definition means to be set apart, holy, or or to sanctify. And again, in Catholic theology, all the saints are in heaven, right, because they're canonized after their death. That's why one cynic once famously said, a saint is a dead sinner revised and edited. But in Scripture, we see two things about saints. That saints in Scripture, they're alive. Saints saints walk the earth as God's redeemed, right? As we're going to look at in a second, basically a saint in Scripture is synonymous with the word Christian. If you're a Christian, you're a saint. But the second thing we see in Scripture that we should definitely take note of is it is almost universally used plural, saints. Only once in all of Scripture is it singular, So that tells me one thing. If I want to be set apart, sanctified, and made holy, I'm not going to do it alone. We're not going to do it alone. Again, there's only one instance of the word saint in the singular uh, sense of the word, and it's in Philippians 4.21, where Paul says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. So even that verse speaks to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we see, biblically speaking, saints are the church. They're the body of Christ. Paul doesn't use it in the Catholic sense, but as synonymous with the word Christian. A saint is who we are in Christ, right? Let that sink in for a second. But before we let that go to our heads, it's also notable. You read Paul's epistles, like read 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is the most, I think this is a true statement, the most jacked up church you will find in the New Testament. They had some serious issues going on, right? Paul spends chapter after chapter addressing them, yet at the very beginning of 1 Corinthians in chapter 1, verse 2, Paul says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to the sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul opens this letter calling his church or excuse me, calling this church saints. And this is a church that was filled with uh, division, right? Abuse of God's gifts, adultery, and he calls them saints. Basically saints in training. Now clearly he doesn't say this based on their merit. And this becomes very clear as you continue to read 1 Corinthians. So how can he say it at all? You see it in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 8 where he says, God will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. You know, we can trust in our identity as saints, justified before God because of those three words. God is faithful, right? Not because of who we are. The gospel is that we are profoundly sinful, but God is profoundly good and gracious. Paul goes on in his letter, right, to the church in Corinth to call them out on all of their sins, all of their issues. And they might have thought, wait, 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 I thought we were saints. Why why all this talk about sin? You know, some in the church today would take similar offense or be triggered in the same way if you were to talk about sin. It's like, no, 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 I'm a saint. As if to 
to admit that you're inclined to sin means that there are some parts of you that aren't saved. You know, if I was in charge of the, the sainthood, I don't even know what to call it, like uh, canonizing people, I'd throw a hat in the ring for Rich Mullins. He uh, was a, a worship leader. He's, he's my Keith Green, Anthony. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's my Keith Green. But he was, uh, he was a worship writer, songwriter, an artist who, who died early in a, in a car accident. But, you know, when you go through the, the, the list of Catholic saints, so often they look like misfits, outcasts that were miscast in their society because they thought different, they worshiped different. That was, that was Rich Mullins. And there was a, an interview once, uh, and uh, he said he was going to be interviewed by a representative from an evangelical program. They wanted to have him as a guest, but they felt like they needed to check him out beforehand because of rumors they'd heard. So they asked him how old he was when he became a Christian, and he said, I guess about two or three. So young, they responded, what happened? Rich said that in Sunday school, they sang a song, come into my heart, come into my heart, come into my heart, Lord Jesus. And the woman said, well, that's not what I meant. You couldn't have possibly been old enough to understand what you were praying. And then Rich responds, lady, I don't advise calling people lady, but he said, lady, we never understand what we're praying. And God in his mercy does not answer our prayers according to our understanding, but according to his wisdom. And then Rich goes on to talk about how he was baptized at the age of 10 because after saying a bad word in front of his mom, he knew he'd sinned and needed to get it right with God. And the lady pressed further and said, no, but what we really want to know is, is when were you born again? And Rich said, lady, which time? He goes on to explain that he used to get born again about once a year. Then at college, it turned into more of like a quarterly thing. And finally, by the time he hit his 40s, he said he was getting born again about four to five times a day. I love that story. And I share it not because I think we should be questioning our assurance of salvation or does God love us. I don't think that was Rich Mullen's point in sharing that, that we shouldn't walk in full assurance of God's love. But I think his point is that we should remember that sin remains with us until we step into heaven's gates. And that should keep us running repeatedly to God's grace again and again, four to five times a day for him, whatever that is for you. All right, too often our perspective of grace and sin begins and ends with the moment at an altar or in our room or wherever it was that we gave our life to Christ. And then sin and grace kind of just slides to the background. And again, sometimes we can act like sin isn't that serious. It's a parking ticket on an otherwise clean record, right? We have no problem admitting that we've committed sins. But I think it's so hard for us so often to take ownership of the fact that we sin. That sin isn't just, if you look at scripture, it's not just on us, it's in us. Sin is of us. But we don't like to own our sins. We might say, yeah, I struggle with lying. But we never say I'm a liar. Or I struggle with gossip, but I'm not a gossiper. Or, I struggle with pornography, but I'm, I'm not sexually immoral. Paul throughout his letters, he does it in 1 Corinthians, he does it in Ephesians, he does it in Titus. A couple others I can't remember at the moment. He, he points to, to what the church was, who you, who you were. Right Again, he opens Corinthians by calling them saints. But then in chapter 6, he goes through this list of, of, of lifestyles, right? characteristics that won't inherit the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, hey, guys, that's what you were. <laughs> that's what you were. And you could hear them thinking, I thought I was a saint, bro. Grace, show me some grace, right? Grace, mercy. But if we aren't willing to own what we've been saved from, we'll never be able to rejoice fully and worship fully the God who does it. Right? The good news is so good because the bad news is so devastatingly bad. 
right? I'm a bigger sinner than I thought, but Jesus is a bigger Savior than I thought. The Scripture says God is rich in mercy, and I don't think we understand just how big his pockets are when it comes to the wealth of mercy that he has for us. You know, I was uh, rereading some of Screwtape Letters, and there's a passage that so closely relates to this series. Because if you're not familiar with Screwtape Letters, it's two demons going back and forth. It's satire about how they're going to trip up God's people. And there's a portion where these two demons are discussing how the most effective way of discrediting a virtue is to, first of all, ruin the word. Introduce associations that alter feelings and even definitions and do that until the word no longer works as intended. And now sin is the opposite of virtue, right? But the same tactics apply. And I think, again, in our culture, maybe not for you, but largely in our culture, sin has been tethered to and married to condemnation. Right, feelings of condemnation. And because of that, I think sometimes we avoid conversations about sin altogether. But in 1 John 1, 8 through 10 that we opened with, what does John tie the presence of sin to? Not condemnation, confession. And he says, if we confess our sins, God frowns at us and scolds us. No, he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. But I think confession is another word that's kind of, the definition has gotten shallow. The application has gotten shallow in, again, our circles. Because this church, if you haven't been to our building in Newport News, you look for a confessional booth, you're not going to find one, right? One of those booths that you step into with the divider for the confessors and the priest on the other side that's sitting in in, in basically the hands and feet of Christ in that moment, right? And and they confess. And we don't have that. You're not going to find that here. I'm not going to slide up in a little booth with a divider. Don't worry about it. But as a result, the very need to confess has kind of been left to the side. And the application, if I'm honest, can get a little weird because we understand that the Bible talks about confession. So kind of pick up this virtue of vulnerability, being authentic, being raw. It's all the rage in our culture. Right? But confession, like if you think about it, if I read the word confession on social media, it's usually followed by like a, a colon or a hyphen. And then it's somebody being vulnerable, right, about what's going on in their life or something that happened. And like Emily was talking about social media earlier, there's nothing wrong with that. But it's really a veneer of vulnerability because on social media, we can always curate, we can always craft our image. But confession, confession is a word that comes from the roots of together and to admit. Confession is coming together with God or a brother and sister in Christ and confessing our failures. You know, again, you can be authentic and vulnerable online, but you do that long enough and you realize this reality that I can be authentic online and still be 100% inauthentic with the people that I'm closest with in my life. Right? Confession is, again, coming together with God and or a brother or sister in Christ and confessing our failures. And, and the Bible doesn't give us an instruction manual, a confession manual. That's why some denominations do it different, but it gives us principles, if not the full primer. But it does show us that spiritual development and confession, they go hand in hand. And confession is powerful because in, in light of what we're talking about tonight, confession reminds us that while we develop and while we grow, we still sin. We still give in to our sin nature. We're, we're at war with sin. Sin doesn't rule over us, but it still sticks around for guerrilla warfare. Right? And, and we fight it, and we're going to have wins, but we're not going to be undefeated. We still need grace. And praise God, he graciously gives it. 
He is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You know, this is a deep theological dive, but David puts it better than I could because he's David. In Psalm 32, verses 1 through 5, where he says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. The question is, do you regularly confess your sins and find forgiveness? Again, regularly. Because to keep away from confession, as we see in this passage, is to sap our strength. Because, again, we need grace like the air we breathe. I need God's grace moment by moment. David said to do so is to be blessed. And Jesus says these same words in Matthew 5, 4, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Maybe you're thinking, how does that even line up? Because it's talking about death. Well, that verse isn't really about death. Now, I'm not saying that we're going to, like, step into heresy when we use it at funerals, because it does say in the Psalms, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants, right? When we mourn people, God mourns with us and he comforts us. But blessed are those who mourn here when Jesus is speaking, speaks to mourning your sin. Again, if you look at the Amplified Version, it spells out what the Greek is saying, that blessed are those who mourn over their sins and repent. And the comfort, the comfort is the same thing that David felt, that the weight of sin is lifted. The weight is lifted. Right? The stain is removed. The, the debt is paid. And that's the gospel. It's the beauty of the good news. But you know, the problem is that we all want the comfort, right? We come to church for the comfort, but we want to skip the first part of the verse, the bad news. For us, this is upside down, that death would come before resurrection, down before up, but there are roots before the fruit. Nobody would say, it'd be weird if you said this, that I go to church to mourn, like weekly, every day. All right, kids, time to go to church. We're going to go mourn. Be a little odd, right? That sounds weird. We come to be comforted. But again, there's no good news without the bad news. The bad news comes first. You know what? That ultimately is good news. You know how many times I've come to church on a Saturday and thought, you know what? I was perfect this week. Zero, right? Again, every week I'm waging war with sin. To this point, I've never been undefeated. And that's just a week, right? Talk talk to me about daily, right? That's why the good news is so good. We need grace like the air we breathe, and it's never going to run out. You know, I come to church, these times of worship, to to lay down my failings, lay down my sin, find forgiveness at the foot of the cross. And then I walk out of church reminded that I'm a saint, that I've been justified before God. Honestly, one of the top verses to me, just because of so much truth it packs into so few words, I've quoted it here many times. It's Hebrews 10, 14. It says, for by that one offering he made, or he forever made perfect, those who are being made holy. By one offering, he's forever made perfect those who are being made holy. Now, if you look at the Greek, that is the most redundant verse ever. It's basically saying, for by one offering, he forever made holy those who are being made holy. By one offering, he is forever made perfect those who are being made perfect. It's like, wait a second. But he's saying he's made saints of those who are still wrestling with sin. We've been justified, 
we're still called to be sanctified. God's grace and his love is big enough for both, right? It's not either or. But why this sermon, why this study, what, how is this even practical? First, because I think we need to divorce the word sin from condemnation. Because when the word sin is married to the word condemnation, it is a weapon of and a tool of the enemy. Because he'll just keep it, he'll just keep it, use it to keep us from coming to Christ. That God wants nothing to do with me. But you know what blows my mind every time I read it in Scripture? That Jesus was, was called the son of David. Maybe you think, yeah, big deal, right? It's David. He's an icon. He was the man after God's own heart. But time out. Read David's life. Like, go back and read, read 1 Samuel. The son of David, that's saying something. Because you, we love to demonize King Saul and lionize King David. But if you line up their lives next to each other and you start checking off the boxes of sins and, and again, the big nasties, David's resume is way bigger than Saul's. David's, you know, it, it was blips on the radar, but when he sinned, he didn't hold back. Let's at least give him that. But Saul's biggest issue wasn't the size of his sins. Saul's biggest issue was his pride. doesn't matter how much you mess up. What matters is whether you take it to God. David did. Saul didn't. By the end of his life, Saul is going to, to witches and all kinds of things. He's not even going to God. And Jesus goes on to be called the son of David. Right? It shows me that God has no qualms you know, being related to, being in relationship with a sinner. Now, it's true. When you come to Christ, God doesn't see your sins. He sees Christ. But, man, he's in relationship with us as we're still struggling saints. His grace is that good. And, you know, the devil is the master of exceptions. That if you've, if you've screwed up your whole life, just do one or two good things, you'll be straight. But then you, you think you're straight, you mess up once, the devil will have you convinced you're entirely disqualified. Plays you like a yo-yo. But God cares about your character. God cares about the posture of your heart as you wage war with sin. Right? David is called in Scripture a man after God's own heart. David is called, in, or it's said of David in Scripture that he fulfilled the purposes of God for his generation. David himself in the Psalms will point to like his righteousness and how he's kept God's laws. And I used to read that in Paul's be like, what are you even talking about? I, your bio's over here to the left. We know what you did. But David understood God sees us not based on exceptions, but on our character. And while we wage war, we're not going to go undefeated. But there's grace, and there's more grace. You know, if I could have the worship team come up, again, practically speaking, when you can take this verse, <laughs> memorize it, apply it to yourself, this helps practically. It's not just some up there verse about theology. When you can realize that you're a justified saint, that through the blood of Christ, you're, you're good with God. Yet at the same time, you're going to struggle with sin and God wants to sanctify and make you look more like Christ. That both of those can be true at the same time. It helps us practically in a couple of ways. The first is it's the foundation for a healthy self-image. You know, those who let sin and condemnation take hold of their life, they'll be humble, right? Maybe not even in the biblical sense of the word. They'll be unassuming. They'll be timid. They won't have any boldness, though. But those who identify as a saint but forget their need for grace due to sin, they'll become arrogant. Oh, they're plenty bold, but they're hardly humble because they forget that, again, they need grace like the air they breathe. And those that receive grace will give grace. 
you know, having a self-image that's big enough to realize both truths of Hebrews 10, 14 means that you'll be humble, but not spineless. <laughs> you'll be bold, but not arrogant. It's the foundation for seeing yourself the way God wants to see you and operating like God wants you to operate. The, the second is it's the foundation for healthy interactions. You know, for again, those that let condemnation take the wheel in their life, they'll never step into healthy confrontation. Too afraid to look like a hypocrite or be exposed for their sins, so we never evangelize, never provide or receive accountability, never challenge sin in our lives or others. We just kind of isolate ourselves. And for those who identify as a saint but forget their need for grace, their daily moment-by-moment -moment need for grace, they can become aggressive and attacking because, again, they lose their self-awareness. We preached last week on compassion. For those that think they've arrived and forget their need for grace, man, contempt can replace compassion. They become ambassadors of conflict rather than ambassadors of reconciliation. Some of you guys, it wouldn't even take a minute to think of 10 people this, like this. But those that receive the most grace should give the most grace. And when we realize how much we desperately need God's grace, we can realize that every person we look at desperately needs grace, sometimes we'll give it a little more than we normally would have. But you know, the good news tonight is the same as really always. But tonight, if you came in here identifying as a sinner, like I'm just, the condemnation followed you through that door. Sin has become synonymous with condemnation rather than conviction or confession. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is you don't have to walk out like that. You might have walked in like that, but you don't have to walk out like that. Blessed are those who mourn their sin and repent for they're comforted the weight is lifted the stain is removed the debt is paid we walk out of here tonight knowing that God sees you as his son God sees you as his daughter God sees you as a saint you know there's a path of sanctification growth ahead for all of us and praise God there's grace for that there's a war with sin ahead of us and grace is the ammunition for the whole battle. We need grace. So as we go into worship tonight, let's praise Jesus who by one offering made saints those sinners who are being made holy. He's justified us. We don't have to be timid coming into God's presence in worship tonight or any night. So as we stand, you know, we're going to have prayer available as well. Look, Tim and Lynn are going to be here. Anthony's here. I'm here. We want to offer a prayer. Because we talked about this Old Testament metaphor as, as sin is a weight. But look, all sin is a weight, but not all weight is sin. But let me say that again. Every sin is a weight, but not all weight in your life is sin. You read it in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. It says, let us lay aside every sin that clings to us and every weight that burdens us. There are things in life that you didn't even do. They've been done to you. Circumstances that are out of your control that have you depressed, anxious, stressed, doubting, discouraged, whatever. Jesus dies that we don't have to live under that weight or any burden. He said himself, come to me, all who are weary and bear heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. So if that's you tonight, you might be overwhelmed by the weight of your sin. You just might be overwhelmed by the weight of life. Let's be serious. Might be your job. Might be health might be relationships in your family, but those things that you came in here feeling that weight, let's not walk out with that weight.
you need prayer, let's stand together in prayer. The Dodds would love to pray for you. I'd love to pray for you. But again, let's praise and worship the God who <laughs> justified us and every day sanctifies us so we look more and more like Jesus. Jesus, we love you. We thank you. We worship you tonight. And we step into worship now. disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, 
whose lives are lived in complete honesty. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and I stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Therefore, let all the godly pray to you while there is still time they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment for you are my hiding place you protected me from trouble you surround me with songs of victory god we've sung so many songs here tonight we thank you that the chorus of our life the anthem of our life is victory we may not be undefeated in every battle with sin but we thank you jesus that there's victory at the cross it's like living in between d-day and v-day but God, we know that victory, final victory is coming. God, when we will be in your presence and worship you forevermore, we thank you that the song that's with us in this life, the song that you sing over us is one of victory. You surround me with songs of victory. So God, I pray that as we leave this place, you'd remind us of how you see us. Son, daughter, saint, <laughs> redeemed, by the blood of your own son. God, we thank you that your love loved us so much you sent your only son to die for us. I pray that that would never become cliche. That would never become so familiar that that doesn't shake us to our core. The goodness of your grace. I was never to become numb to that, Lord God. I was to awaken to that again tonight. The goodness of the gospel of grace. I'm a worse sinner than I thought I was. But God's grace and mercy is that much better. Jesus is that much better a savior. And God, we thank you that no matter what we're walking through, no matter what we're going home to, Jesus, the grave is empty. Victory is coming. But God, again, I pray that if we walked in here with any kind of weight, every sin is a weight, not every weight is a sin. Whether it's pain, whether it's relational pain, Again, whatever it may be, God, I pray that we would take time before we leave this place to pray, offer it up to you, so we can walk out of this place with the peace that's beyond understanding. Knowing that, as it says in Psalm 23, goodness and mercy follow us all the days of our lives. And we pray that that chorus, that, that, that anthem of victory, God, would be one that we hear when we wake up in the morning, when we go to bed at night. And Jesus, we thank you. That's, that's only through you. God, that's only through your grace. So we praise you for it. God, I pray that all our days will be ceaseless praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen and amen. And if you guys need prayer for anything, we got people that would love to pray for you. Otherwise, I say hello to